Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. All right, would you stand for the reading of the word? Matthew 16. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. (laughs) Sorry, Sarah, for getting the announcements flown at you last minute. I do want to emphasize that one more time, is that this Tuesday, if you were at the city gathering with John Tyson that we did here with churches from around our region, we're inviting those churches back. This isn't sort of the next big thing, but we wanted to make sure that there's a regular a monthly rhythm where we are gathering together to sing and to worship uh, and to pray together. And so our last season of heart has all been at 12 Bassett Street. So again, this heart is gonna be right here, worship night from seven to 8.30 or so. We would uh, highly encourage you, especially if you're a leader or part of the team, would you just make every effort um, to be here? It's, um, I think it's really important for us as a church to just be in that kind of spiritual alignment that happens at those sorts of nights. A lot of the stories that Greg was just talking about seem to come in part from those kinds of nights. Um, Matthew 16, we um, are going to just jump right into the text. Um, we uh, have been in this series called The One We Long For. Um, just kind of identifying that there is um, something to beholding the very character and nature of God that um, allows us actually really to have, I'd probably say, less conversations about what you need to do or not do and how to live so much just natural um, kind of understanding um, comes, I think, in life, in living our life, comes from simply beholding something, like looking intently into the in this case, the beauty of who God is. When we have clarity on our meaning and on our, on our vision for our life, on these sort of meta-narratives, there is something that begins to just take hold of our day-to-day life. Um, and, and then also we just recognize that so many of you are new to the way of Jesus or have never been apprenticed to Jesus you sort of adopted a vague kind of Christian lifestyle and never had someone like walk you through that. And I can't do that in a sermon, but what we wanted to do is just take one of the foundational pillars of the Christian faith, which is the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this understanding that God is somehow a community of, of love, of three in oneness, and take six to seven weeks on each person. So we just spent all of the season of Lent, looking at God the Father and looking at different aspects. So it's sort of like a, a, a doctrine, like just a basic walk through some basic doctrine of understanding what God the Father is like and hopefully putting some like flesh and blood on it. And now moving into Eastertide, we wanna spend the next six to seven weeks looking at the compelling figure of Jesus. 
And what are his statements about who he is? And so I thought it appropriate that we would begin then with the question that Jesus poses just before this section that we read, which is who do you say I am? Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? What about you? Not unlike ancient Israel here, 2,000 some years ago, this tends to be the question. You would think at this point this question would go away. And yet what Jesus are we talking about? Because Jesus as a figure gets weaponized like pretty regularly. If you're paying attention to whether it be the politics, the cultural lenses that we kind of fix ourselves onto. And I, I posted this question um, up on my Instagram last night, just sort of like, hey, I'm gonna be preaching on this, excited about it, you know, just sort of a little nudge for anyone who's ever on the fence of like coming on a Sunday morning. And I try to do that always on Sundays that I feel like the teaching might relate to somebody who's pretty new to all of this, which isn't always the case. And I had a, uh, uh, an old friend, um, doesn't go to sanctuary, reach out and say, I've been thinking about that question a lot lately. Who do you say I am? And she just goes, Andrew, it's been a really brutal season. And that question, depending on how I'm doing, is, um, is, is really, really um, challenging. Because when life feels like it's in this moment of great disarray and I'm not sure like, how to handle the next incline, the next battle, hearing Jesus ask me again, who, who do you say that I am? Which, which could be translated like what, like, what am I capable, what, are you capable, what do you think I'm capable of? How much faith do you really have in me? What am I really able to do? What is actually happening in the world? Some sense of meaning in life. And so I actually, re- I asked her in this quick interchange, I said, hey, do you have any insight? You've been thinking about this question a lot. And she goes, No. Just let people know it's okay. It's okay to really wrestle with that question and to be a little bit scared of what your answer is right now versus what your answer quote should be. Thought that was good, right? And I I just wanted to believe that maybe that word right there was just for somebody today. Like for somebody today, it was, you, you may like already have lodged away, this is the answer, he is the son of God, he died on the cross and he rose again and he's all powerful and you can invite him into my, like, my heart. But like maybe today like those sort of big abstract questions or answers to that question um, don't land in the same sort of way. And, and it was like an invitation from her to all of you, which was just, just let people know they can engage this question honestly this morning, it's safe. It's okay, because the opposite of faith, right, is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear, and we don't need to fear this question. Jesus coming to us saying, who do you say that I am? Every once in a while, Jesus will mention um, where he's going. This is like one of those passages. We're going to spend just the next few minutes here just walking through this text. 
Matthew 16, 13, 13 through the end. Roughly around 30 AD, um, this, this whole scene is happening. Caesarea Philippi is the place that we are told that Jesus is with his disciples. This is home of the infamous goat god Pan. Any Peter Pan fans out there? This is where Peter Pan actually gets his name. Pan, if, you, if you're familiar at all with Greek mythology, like the Pan god is like pretty like infamous, um, deeply like, I'm just scanning the room at the different ages here, so I'm gonna be a little censored. But Pan gets into trouble, all sorts of trouble, various kinds of trouble. There's a few statues I think we have of Pan up here if you wanna just show those. This is one, this is just called uh, a troublemaker resting was, the, was the, the name of this particular statue that was found. Next slide, and just skim quickly through this one. This one's a little more graphic. Next slide. Next slide. Apparently I'm being rejected to not show the next slide. Okay. Okay, then move quickly on. Quickly on, quickly on, okay. If you don't have the imagination to put together what was happening there, then good for you. Pan. (laughs) Pan dictated so much of the spirit of the age. We can look at stuff like that and go, oh, those crazy pagan gods. Pagan was not like some pejorative phrase. It was literally like, it was, the under, it was the language used to describe what was the common folk religion of the day. It was like, it, it was just eat, drink, and be merry. And this just covered the spirit of the city of Caesarea Philippi, also called Banius, if you were to look this up. Caesarea Philippi got its name when Herod, if you remember Herod from the Christmas narratives, Herod gave this city to his son in honor of the Caesar who had just taken over. You think you struggle with privilege. Imagine like 16th birthday, it was Herod's son's 16th birthday, and he's like, here's a city, and named it after him. There's an epic temple that was built there that's not there anymore. There's tons of tours that go there from all sorts of different faiths. Uh, It was a pretty seminal city in the ancient world. Now, if you were a good Jewish student, like the apprentices of Jesus, you would go there all the time? No. Thank you. If you've ever signed, like, I don't know what would be on the youth group rider, but, like, you don't take a mission trip to Caesarea Philippi. We know from where Jesus was just before this that it was about a 26-mile hike. Now, rabbis, which Jesus is a rabbi, would often do this. He would bring his apprentices, bring his disciples places, not knowing where they were going, to teach them a lesson, to give them some sort of vision. So imagine you're just walking along this 26-mile-like hike. And you're having all this conversation, you're stopping, and Jesus is telling these parables, and you're trying to make sense. And all of a sudden, these post-pubescent disciples are going, are, do you suddenly realize, like, I think we're going to Caesarea. No, we wouldn't. Jesus wouldn't take a Caesarea Philippi. And they just keep walking. I think we're going to Caesarea Philippi. No, there's no way we're going to Caesarea Oh, my gosh, we're going to Caesarea Philippi. And they arrive there. No permission slip. And it's in this place of despair and confusion about life, about their sexuality, about meaning. Jesus gives this kind of like graduation speech. I mean, this is the text that gives birth to the whole vision of the Catholic Church around what the Pope is. 
We read things like Jesus gives Peter the, like the, the, uh, the keys to the kingdom. Keys are something that like the master of the house would give to a top official or give to a top servant. Jesus says to Peter, I'm giving you the authority to welcome people into the house. And we know from the book of Acts, which are stories about the early church, we know this is exactly what happens. The stories of the early church, whether you read them in the Bible or you read them in history books, is fascinating. It's literally this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile coming down. All of these racial divides in a hyper-tribalistic world coming down and being welcomed into the church. We read, then whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, which R.T. France says, this is not sort of a promise of divine endorsement, but a promise of divine guidance. So God's gonna be with you, Peter. Peter, you right here in this mess of the world, I'm going to build my church. And he says, who do you say that I am? Like He wants to be really clear that Peter is lined up And Peter calls him the Messiah. And Jesus, by the way, quickly says, don't tell anybody that I am the Messiah. Why? Well, because to be the Messiah is to claim something deeply political. It's a claim that calls in to question all of the power structures of his day. To claim that Jesus is the Messiah, it's like basically saying Jesus is the king, the savior. Jesus is Lord was the other language. And if you were here at Easter, we talked about how politically charged that phrase was because the common phrase of the day was Caesar is Lord. That phrase calls into question every power broker of the day, which we know is why Jesus was put to death. It was like a one-two punch. It was the Jewish authorities who were deeply offended and rattled that Jesus was calling himself the Messiah. And then they go, look, this guy is a political deviant. He's saying things like, like Jesus is Lord, he's Lord and not Caesar, and then puts the Roman authorities in a tough spot. And so you sort of have these two storms that are happening culturally in our world at that moment. The rise of the Jewish state within Rome and the Roman authorities, and you see Jesus put to death for being called, for calling himself the Messiah. This is why he says don't tell anybody yet, because his work wasn't done. He knew what would happen when that comes out, which it does. Now, I say all this to say that the book of Matthew hinges on this story and on this question. Who do you say I am? Remember at Easter, we talked about how the gospel is the gospels. Like the good news is the announcement that we find in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. That ultimately is the gospel, is the story of Jesus coming and showing us what God is like, dying on the cross, revealing his nature and his love, bridging the gap between us and God, rising again, announcing eternal life and that we can begin to live in that life now, joining God in the renewal of the broken world now as the kingdom of God breaks through. That's what the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are about. And in the book of Matthew, the book is cut, split right here on this question. So who do you say I am? Commentators, these epic books that pastors look through when they're preparing their sermon, they almost always break it right here, and it's not random. It's not just because it happens to be like close to the actual center point. It's that everything before this question 
is trying to answer, who do you say that I am? Set the question up. And everything after is fleshing out the answer, which is you are the Messiah, the living God. Just like the Matthews of the day, there are all these questions about who Jesus actually is. Is Jesus the wise sage, the sort of like Buddha figure? Is Jesus a social justice warrior, preferential treatment for the poor? Is Jesus, is this like, are we look, talking about the Republican Jesus, the nationalistic Jesus, the militaristic Jesus? Are we talking about the progressive Jesus, the left-leaning Jesus, the liberal Jesus? How you answer the question, and this is going to sound a little over the top, but hopefully this will make sense. How you answer this question, who do you say I am, will define you. Completely define you. Most important thing we talked about when we began this series, the one you long for, is your vision of God. Is what you believe about who God is. This is our conviction, the sanctuary. And the Christian story, the way of Jesus, Christian theology, at its best, hear this, is a healing of your vision of God and a reunion of your soul with that vision. What is your vision of God and a reunion of your soul with that vision? And this is where neuroscience and theology actually line up deeply. They're in complete agreement. You become like your vision of God. Or if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, has no vision of God, could give a rip about the question that Jesus asked. What is your meta vision of life? Just take a minute and ask the question. I know it's hard. It's early on a Sunday morning. What's your vision of life? I was just having a conversation with, is he here? I think he stepped out from it. With a friend of mine about his like goals and vision of life. It was such a great question. And we were just asking like, oh, isn't it interesting how you have these moments of life where you actually don't have the clarity you thought you had on what my vision for my life is. Even if you don't believe in God, you, you will still become like whatever you replace God with in your mind. What is your value system? What is life? Be sort of kind, leave some sort of legacy, but it doesn't really matter. You'll be worm food soon. We have to consider these things because whether we want to acknowledge them or not, everyone, and I mean everyone, Christian or not, says it drives you. This is what neuroscience is teaching us about the pathways in our head. It shapes everything about you And if you keep it kind of subtly pushed down, even that is shaping things about you. You become a reactive personality. No vision of where you're going, what you're doing, what this is all about, what this is for. And we numb and we hide, some of us. Whatever you claim as ultimate, you will become like it. Is this making sense? You will become like whatever you think is the meaning and purpose. So if that's power or if that's individual expression, if that's wealth, if that's pleasure-seeking, if that's your body, if that's intelligence, if that's some sort of inner zen peace, like you fill in the blank, this will shape you. A.W. Tozer, again, said, we tend to move toward our mental image of God. We become like who we think God is, or we become like who we think God is not. But all too often, our image of God or our opinion of Jesus is far more about us than it does about Jesus. I wish I had time to do, I had this idea in the sermon, but I, I just don't have time for this. And it was like, I, I put little notes in my talk sometimes 
I circle little things in red. I'm like, this is a rabbit trail warning. <laughs> Clearly, I don't do great at this, but I could try. But I was thinking about walking through a bookstore. And so many of the books, I'm not even sure what's like really like hot right now, but I think of like um, Reza, Reza's book. Um, what's his book? Oh my gosh, I forgot it. Doesn't matter. A number of the more current books that have come out recently about the person of Jesus have just been eviscerated in Christian scholarship, like eviscerated. Because they say so much, if you've ever read something that says so much about the author and actually not so much about the content that the author or the person the author is trying to flesh out. You could go through a walk to just like seeing how when you look at certain people's explanations of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about, and you can tend to pick up pretty quick some kind of edge. You can test this in your own heart. I think in so many ways, this is what happened with so many folks, sort of the great resignation and deconstruction that happened. It was like people had a vision of who Jesus was. They saw other people violate that vision of Jesus one way or another and began to go, well, I must not really know Jesus at all. Jesus must not be able to be explored, found out about. I can't really have a revelation of this Jesus and walked away. We need actually a revelation of Jesus to cut through our projection. I've said this so many times, but if you took time to read through the gospels, my bet would be this. Jesus is way more inclusive and way more open and way more loving than you thought he was. And he's way more constrictive and way more exclusive and a little harder than you thought he was. Just in general, this tends to happen. Like, oh, Jesus has some really, really strong words about anxiety, clothing, loving your enemy, relationships. So that's cool. I mean, contextualize is different than what it is now. You know, Jesus has some really, really hard things to say about holiness and purity. Jesus has some really strong things to say about welcoming the outsider about deep love and grace and forgiveness. Jesus has a lot of things to say about calling somebody out because it matters the life that you live and if you actually love somebody, your, your love is gonna be volitional. Jesus, depending on what you're coming and what you're looking for, we have a tendency to project onto him. He becomes a projection of our background, of our opinions, of our desires, even of our wishful thinking of our culture, which is why we need to cut through our projection and ask Jesus or, and look for a revelation of him. And so I want you to notice in this story that Jesus does not show up in the book of Matthew on day one. We are at Matthew 16. He does not come and just announce, like show up on the scene, like descend, you know, like this, this guy, Nick, Nick keeps Jesus in reverse, and come down, descend upon us and go, I am the Messiah, believe in me or don't. No, he doesn't. He's subtle. He just goes around Israel doing like Messiah-like things, healing the sick. And people start asking, like, who are you? Like, who is that guy? Who's the son of man? And Jesus, like, responds, like, I, I don't know. Who am I? Right? Like, <laughs> casting out evil feeding people again and again and again and again. The dude eats so much. Over and over, lunch, feeds people. And the people are like, who is this guy? Who is, I don't know. Who do you think that I am? Must be infuriating for his apprentices sometimes. He shows up and does all these little Messiah things. The big question for many of us over the years, I think, 
especially like in our day and age, is why does God not show up in more obvious ways? Why doesn't God make himself more clear? Now, I think there's a number of really good answers to that question, but a key one is that um, God chose to actualize this world with love as the highest value. Love demands freedom and love demands choice. Without them, there is no love. And so you have to have an option to love if you're gonna be in relationship with the God of the universe. And, and you stop being like God and an image bearer when you don't love. And so God, wanting people to be like him who is a God of love, he veils himself. Because if God revealed himself, he would overwhelm your capacity for freedom and love. Overwhelm it. If God showed up in the flesh and blood. So Jesus, if he is the revelation of God, he's subtle. Maybe this is why the way that Jesus came to us was so important. In a manger, born in trash and straw, comes to us saying, this is what I'm like. Wooing us. But that said, there does come a time clearly here in Matthew 16, not on page one, but when Jesus will ask the question, who do you say that I am? Now, some of you are brand new to the way of Jesus, to all this, and you aren't ready for that question. The beautiful thing about the way of Jesus is people come and explore it. You can come, this is why we call it sanctuary, sanctuary, a safe place to just come and sit at his feet. That's why our values are like a kid's song, like upward, inward, outward, with foot, one, two. Like, like, it's on purpose, though, because we wanted directions that were journey-oriented. We journey upward to be with Jesus. We journey inward, and you could begin that journey because people stumble into the way of Jesus from all sorts of different places. I mean, just looking at this pew right here, like, the, the, the stories are unbelievable, like, oh, you came from that vantage point, you came from that background, you came from that history, you came from that trauma, you came from that area of brokenness. People stumble in to the path of Jesus. You can begin to walk the Jesus, the walk the path of Jesus and not have all the answers. This is what, by the way, Alpha is about. When you see Alpha pop up on our radar in a couple months, sign up for that if you're brand new. Or in just a, a week, we're gonna start Pathway, which is like kind of a, a 102 of learning about discipleship in our community. How do we think about following the way of Jesus? This is a place the last time we did it, some folks were strong followers of Jesus and others were pretty brand new to the journey. This question isn't, isn't kind of posed to us yet. I don't know who I say that you are. I'm on the journey to, dis, to discovering this. We want this to be a place where you can hold up the way of Jesus against your worldview or against other religions or against other like, you know, therapeutic worldviews of how we think about the world. But others of you, I say that to all those who are just seeking and wrestling, like take a deep breath and come on the journey. But, but Jesus does ask the question. Others of you have been doing that for a while. And you may not know it, but you are ready for this question. You are ready for the moment to answer like Simon Peter does. No, I, I do believe you are the Messiah. And I think there are two shifts. I kind of want to just land it here. Two shifts that happen in our interior architecture, like in, in our bones, in our heart. When we answer the question, who do you say I am with the answer, I, I believe you're, you're the Messiah. 
I believe you're God of the universe. I think there are two things that begin to shift in us that will literally change everything about your, your life. The first, the first is a movement from fear to faith. I've been thinking so much about this over the last, I don't know, it feels like three or four years now. All we have ever known, unless those, other than those of you who are maybe like 60 plus, which gosh, we need to like hear your stories <laughs> more than ever. All we've ever known is sort of decline in the West. As the church is exploding in China, the church exploding in Africa and the Southern Hemisphere, in the West, there's just been this decline. Not unlike what Simon Peter's looking at in Caesarea Philippi. Imagine how scary it was for him to stand there and look at that moment, look at this place that embodied all the exile and captivity you've experienced. And it's in that place that Peter gets sort of a name. The rock. He was the first rock. The rock, he's given this name. Right there on the edifice of paganism, on this rock. Now there was this epic rock. I think we have a picture of the cave here. That's still there in Caesarea Philippi. And this rock in this cave outlet is literally called. You want to know what that's called? Anyone know? It's called the gates of hell. Or the gates of Hades. And Jesus says in this very passage. The gates of hell. The gates of Hades. Will not stand against his ecclesia, his church, his community gathered for the movement. It's an interesting image, right? Because gates, similar to today, gates haven't changed a whole lot. Are gates offensive or defensive things? <laughs> defensive. This is my favorite observation, I think, in all of Scripture. We sometimes read this like, yeah, the, the, gate, the gates of hell like, won't prevail against the church. Gates are defensive. Who's on the offense? I know this gets sticky to talk about in our culture and in our city. We start talking about offense. It's like, all right, is this going to turn like moral crusader language? But let's be very clear. At the birthplace, at the graduation ceremony, Jesus goes, would you like to know who's on the offensive? Peter. On this rock, I'm going to give you a special call, and we'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to build my church right here in Caesarea Philippi. It's where it's going to start. Right here in all of this confusion and all of this chaos and all of these like di fascinating dynamics about what it means to be human. That Jesus is like, this stuff is oppressive and broken. I mean, the Roman Empire was one of the most oppressive environments that the world has ever seen or known. And he goes, oh, we're going to build something else here. And the gates of hell are not going to stand against it. It will not stand against the advancement of the church. So the reason why I talk about faith and fear here is because you don't need to live in fear. Quite simply, the answer to the question, who do you say I am? Jesus, the Messiah. To actually embody and take that answer into your bones is to say you can have faith for the future. 
You can actually have confidence that's grounded in a reality that God is risen, that he's good, that he's moving, that he's making all things new. You don't have to fear. Again, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's fear. And in a place like Providence, there is so much fear. There's so much terror all around us. And fear-based living is lethal. Is lethal. Because as long as we need our life to go a certain way, hear this, please. As long as you need your life to go a certain way, and we feel anxiety of our control over our life is under threat. We feel we can't control our life. All right, this is what happened with COVID. Just, just, I, I can't control this. It's why you have people now, like, long after the fact, still wrestling with all that was unearthed there of feeling the great uncertainty of the moment. And there's this feeling that as long as we live that way, trying to control things and control people to build a sort of, like, insulation around our life, we will, actu- we will actually and often accidentally bully and hurt and domineer other people in our attempt to maintain control over our little world. We won't become people of faith and love and inner peace. Most of us for this last decade have felt like we've got to hide our faith under a bushel. (laughs) Not the global church again, but here in the American church. It would be easy to feel defeated. I have no dream for our world. But if you're Simon standing there at the edge of the pagan world, then you have a revelation that Jesus really is who he says he is. And Jesus says to you, gates of hell, bro. Gates of hell not going to stand against what we're about to build. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. I'm going to be at your back. And be clear, Peter makes all sorts of mistakes. Fails like two chapters later. We've seen failure in the American church for sure. But he's saying, no, 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 this is the beginning in your life, away from fear and towards deep trust and faith. One way you could say to frame the whole spiritual journey is from fear Sorry, from a decrease in fear to an increase in faith. A decrease in anxious striving for control and an increase in your capacity to trust and to live in freedom of the kingdom of God. Another writer says, all healing, all healing is the removal of fear. That's good, right? I wanted to claim that one for my own, but I didn't. All healing is the removal of fear. Growing in Jesus is the removal of one fear after another in your heart. One fear after another. People that don't need to control all the people and all the events around them to be happy, who can entrust others to God, who can become people of love and of courage. And so for so many of you right now, if we're just gonna have invitation number one today, So many of you, Jesus is like target in your heart is what you fear the most. Imagine there's like a little target there. Jesus is like, I'm going to get you. Right there. Right there. It's what you need or think you need to live a happy life. What do you think you need to have everything under control? And it's robbing you of joy and freedom and life in the moment and a non-anxious spirit and a life that allows you to dream and to risk in the way the kingdom of God invites you to risk. 
you know probably what that thing is. And if not, it's the thing that gets revealed when it's taken away. Or, or there's a threat against it being taken away. This is why, by the way, Jesus says it's really hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard. It's hard when you're wealthy and insulated and full of privilege to get it. It's just hard. It's not impossible. Jesus is funded by very wealthy women. Jesus does not push against the elite as an ultimate class. But he keeps noticing it's those that have a childlike spirit who are poor in spirit, he says. Not middle class in spirit, not elite in spirit, poor in spirit. who seem to get it. You can be wealthy and be poor in spirit. You can have a lot. You can be insulated from the harms of the world. You, and you can use that and steward that for great, like, goodness in the kingdom and actually begin to walk with Jesus. But Jesus says it's hard. It's hard. It's very difficult. It's just an observation. And so when those things get taken away or there's threat of things getting taken away, those are the things often that Jesus is targeting in your heart. What do you fear the most? What is it that you need or think you need? I need that job. I need that relationship. I need my reputation to be like this. I need my health to be like this. I think I need this to be happy and at peace. And I just simply pose to you, what if you don't? Who do you say that I am? Jesus the Messiah is a way of going, what if I don't? What if I don't need those things? What if I'm blessed? What if I'm living in the kingdom of God and no one can take that away from me? What if my home is in God? What if nothing could separate me from the love of God? How many people have heard that a million times? To know it in our bones, we know how hard it is when that situation comes at us, when that struggle arrives at our doorstep. What if there's another world breaking in right here in the midst of this one? What if I'm in Jesus and don't need to fear? To answer Jesus' question, who do you say that I am with? Bro, you are the living God, bro. (laughs) Bro, Jesus, bro. You are the living God. You are the King and the Messiah. And so then number two, I think moving from faith, fear to faith, Two, and forgive how cheesy this one sounds, but from fishing to founding. From fishing to founding. Simon Peter, again, was not an elite, but he was given a role to play in the kingdom of God. Now, we have to be careful. He gave Peter a role. Sometimes, like, our millennial parenting thing, for those of you who are millennial parents, we, or, like, we're raised by folks that were close to that. Like, <laughs> we can suddenly be like, oh, like, Peter, everybody has a unique role, and I'm just like Peter. Like, no, Peter had a specific role, like, the founding of the church. That's not you. You don't have that role. Take it easy. You're not as special as Peter, probably. <laughs> no, no, like Jesus isn't like, like give trophies to everybody. But <laughs> I do think this is emblematic because Jesus does this all the time. God the Father does this all the time. God takes ordinary people and calls them to significant roles in the kingdom. Whether that's the significant role of discipling your children or being a voice of hope on your street, and everybody on your street knows that your house is always open and full of love and grace, knows there's an extra room and a couch there that someone can crash on. You have to draw like a few extra boundaries because you're getting hit up all the time with people who need to process what they're going through, Christian or not, because that place is safe. It is fascinating how Jesus calls the most ordinary of us to participate in the kingdom of God. 
Peter might specifically be called like the rock, but he says later in his letter that we are all living stones. We're all part of this. We're all part of this. So God is calling some of you up. Some of you God's inviting into greater leadership. Whether it's as simple as like, I'm gonna serve in that kid's city thing. I'm gonna help the kids out. Because I see the same parents down there who are with their kids all day and then come to church and are with their kids all day and I'm, I'm signing up. <laughs> we need help putting on more like outreach and helping equip our church to move in mission. My bro Edison was just talking about prison ministry. How are we gonna lean into this more? Because there's a call and a heart there. There's a lot of us in recovery who are in this room who are like, we can do more. I think God might be calling me to step up. Some of you are incredibly wealthy. And there's an invitation to think about how am I gonna steward my generosity in the same way you think about expanding your portfolio. What is it to expand the kingdom portfolio? God's calling you up. So to end, to end, Jesus is saying, standing there in Caesarea Philippi, I imagine him looking around going, do you see the confusion about life do you see the confusion about sexuality? Do you see the confusion about death and despair and possessions and relationships and hope? Do you see it? He says, here, we are gonna build something so compelling and beautiful that nothing is gonna stop it. Nothing's gonna stop it. And the way the way that this movement is gonna move forward. You could say it in a lot of different ways, but Mark 10, but among you, it will be different. He's talking about us. Whoever wants to be a leader, whoever wants to charge the gates of hell must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. This is strong language. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve others the king of the world came not to like come to me, worship me. No, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we know from history that this exact city, Banias, Caesarea Philippi, became the centerpiece of the way of Jesus. By the fourth century, every temple that was up against that wall had been converted into a church. Friends, we live on the bleeding edge of secularism. So much about our city and our world and our worldview is very pan-ish. It would be easy to keep your head down as a Christian, come to church and bury your faith the rest of the, the week. But he is the Messiah. And we have what to fear? Nothing. And we have nothing to fear, not even death. And you have a role to play in the future. So let's stop. <laughs> let's take a deep breath. One more. What is God stirring in your heart? Maybe you're ready to like receive it openly or you're resisting it. Is there anything you need to let go of? Is there anything God's drawing your attention to? What might God be inviting you into? Is there any fear you need to name and begin to let go of?
What's stirring in your heart? What's preventing you from dreaming again? These are very likely not small things. But who do we think Jesus is? Who do we think Jesus is? Is he able? Is he more than able to do the sorts of things that he said he would do, that we've seen he would do? You're sitting next to living, breathing stones of God's faithfulness. You are more than able, God. So I just pray, come Holy Spirit, as we close our time, would you awaken our hearts stir our affections towards you. To rouse, Lord, our spirit and our energy and our resolve. To lay down our fear and to pick up our calling. To understand the implications of the answer to the question, who do you say I am? The Messiah, the lover of my soul. invite you just to take the next just few seconds to pray, to write, to journal, to consider these questions. And then when we're done, I want to invite you to stand as the band begins to sing or to come forward, to kneel, to turn to your friend or spouse or to name it, say the things out loud part of saying we believe Jesus that you are the Messiah and King and you've sent your Holy Spirit is to take a simple moment like this seriously to say yes God there's that little thing there's that big thing have your way in me as we proclaim his goodness and mercy and his power his power over our fear his power over our fear come Holy Spirit